This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, listeners. Uh, exciting episode in store for you today. I'm joined with Dr. Justin Boyle. Justin, what article are you going to be talking about today? Nice to be back. Today I'll be talking about an article recently published in Nedgem in December 2023 entitled Dual Antiplatelet Treatment Up to 72 Hours After Ischemic Stroke. All right. And what was the research question here? The research question they were looking into is if dual antiplatelet therapy with uh, clopidocrol and aspirin initiated within 72 hours after onset of an ischemic stroke is superior to aspirin alone with respect to the risk of new ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke among patients that had a mild ischemic stroke or high-risk TIA. Yeah, I saw this in the New England and I thought, wait, don't we already know the answer to this question? I thought we already know if somebody has a mild stroke or high-risk TIA that they should get dual antiplatelet, but I must be missing something. So, so like, why did this catch your eye? So this caught my eye because the prior studies uh, and guidelines really look into a 24-hour period after a high-risk TIA or mild ischemic stroke per the NIHSS score. And so really, the question is if we can open up that window beyond 24 hours in terms of initiating DAPT, particularly because uh, risk of recurrent stroke is quite high within this population. And so that's really their driving force behind wanting to study this further. Yeah, I kind of think I have just been misapplying the original evidence. And I think like anyone who I see with a TIA or high-risk stroke, pardon me, uh, high-risk TIA or mild stroke, even if it's 48 hours, I think I've just been assuming dual antiplatelet is the way to go, but uh, maybe that's just me. Anyway, what was the study design here? So the study design was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, a two-by-two factorial trial that was done in China. The population they were looking at is essentially individuals aged between 35 and 80 that had an ischemic stroke with an NIHSS score of five or less, so a mild ischemic stroke, or high-risk TIA with an ABCD2 score higher than four within 24 to 72 hours after symptom onset, or had uh, ischemic stroke with an NIHSS score of less than five within 24 hours after symptom onset. Their key exclusion criteria within this population were people that had already received thrombolysis and vascular therapy or any other anticoagulant or were previously on DAPT, for example, or if they thought this was a cardioembolic cause and not an ischemic cause of their stroke. The intervention that they were looking at with the comparator was patients being assigned in a one-to-one ratio within 72 hours after symptom onset to receive combined clopidogrel plus aspirin, the clopidogrel aspirin group, or matching clopidogrel placebo plus aspirin, the aspirin group. And essentially, this is important for me to highlight just for my commentary on limitations of the trial, but specifically the doses that they used within each arm were a loading dose of clopidogrel on the first day within the clopidogrel aspirin group, followed by 75 milligrams on days to 90, plus aspirin at a dose of 100 to 300 milligrams on the first day, then 100 milligrams daily for days 2 to 21, and then a matching aspirin placebo for days 22 to 90. Patients within the aspirin group received a dose of 100 to 300 milligrams on day one, followed by 100 milligrams daily for days 2 to 90. The outcome that they were looking at within the primary efficacy outcome was any new stroke, ischemic or hemorrhagic, within 90 days. And the secondary outcomes were a composite of cardiovascular events within 90 days, ischemic stroke, TIA, MI, and death from cardiovascular causes, as well as a poor functional outcome. Their primary safety outcome was moderate to severe bleeding that has been defined in previous uh, thrombolysis trials within stroke, Um, but essentially severe or life-threatening bleeding was defined as if they required um, any sort of 
hemodynamic support as a result of their bleeding, and moderate bleeding was defined as a need for transfusion. Okay, cool. So yeah, I, I see what you mean now, especially as we go through the nuts and bolts of this trial, that it's this longer time window. And I guess as well in the CHANCE trial, I only know this because I Googled it while you were talking, um, they included NIHSS of like three or lower. So I guess this was slightly more severe, but still very mild stroke. So so that makes sense. And it's this funny two by two factorial design, which we're, we're not going to jump deep into. But of course, there was some other randomization related to statins. But again, we'll leave that out. Uh, so what did the patients look like? So essentially, 6,100 individuals were randomized within this trial. The median age of the patients between each arm was 65 years, with 35% of these uh, individuals being women. 98.5% were Han Chinese. Beyond that, 67.6% had multiple acute infarctions on imaging. 90.2% of patients had an acute single infarction as their index event, and 13.1% had a TIA as an index event. In the one month preceding their index event of either TIA or stroke, 13% of patients were on aspirin and 0.7% were already on clopidogrel. And beyond that, within the individuals that had an acute ischemic stroke, 76% had an NIHSS score of three or less. So these were quite mild strokes that were included. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the age distribution, I think, is very common to what we would see in Sinai or Sault Ste. Marie. Um, the fact that they had multiple acute infarcts on imaging, I got to be honest, that's not usually what we see um, in individuals who are coming in like a like your bread and butter mild stroke. But anyway, what were the main results here? So the main result with respect to their primary efficacy outcome was that a new stroke within 90 days occurred in 7.3% of patients in the clopidogrel aspirin group and 279 or 9.2% of patients in the aspirin group. And so really this hazard ratio is 0.79 favoring dual antiplatelet therapy. With respect to their secondary outcome, a composite cardiovascular event occurred in 7.5% of people in the DAPT group and 9.3% of individuals in the aspirin-only group. And just to sort of break this down further, the overall risk of ischemic stroke was 6.8% in DAPT versus 9.0% in the aspirin group. And a risk of TIA was 0.7% in the DAPT group and then 1.3% in the aspirin group. And to note, the risk of hemorrhagic stroke was 0.5% in DAPT and 0.2% in the aspirin-only group. With respect to their primary safety endpoint of moderate to severe bleeding, this occurred in 0.9% of individuals in the clopidogrel aspirin group and then 0.4% of individuals in the aspirin-only group. And so this hazard ratio is 2.08. Gotcha. So really, if we boil this down, if these individuals took 90 days of DAPT, they certainly had a lower risk of subsequent stroke, like a 2% absolute risk reduction or a 20% relative risk reduction. So, you know, pretty impressive. However, they had a higher risk of hemorrhagic stroke. That's not a good thing. And they also had a higher risk of bleeding. So I guess what are some important limitations of this trial? So some important limitations of this trial are that um, really Important populations of patients with stroke or TA were excluded, such as individuals with stroke from presumed cardioembolic origin, which is quite common, as well as for individuals that have moderate to severe stroke, so having an NIHSS score greater than five, and those who had undergone either thrombolysis or thrombectomy. Beyond that, the majority of patients enrolled within this population were of uh, Han Chinese descent, of course, being this, this trial being conducted in China. And so the larger generalizability of the study beyond China um, may be challenging to interpret. 
Beyond that, uh, clopidogrel is known to require hepatic cytochrome P450 in order to generate its active metabolites for its antiplatelet effects. And so in terms of assessing whether or not this population had the required cytochrome to metabolize, clopidogrel is uncertain within this trial as it was not a criteria for enrollment. And then to my point about sort of the structure and the dosing of the aspirin and clopidogrel that they used. Um, so within the Canadian Stroke Best Practice Guidelines, uh, essentially they recommend 21 days of DAPT with clopidogrel or aspirin and for 30 days with aspirin and ticagrelor to be initiated within 24 hours of the index event. However, in this trial within the DAPT arm, they used 21 days of 75 milligrams of Plavix combined with 100 milligrams of aspirin to then drop down to Plavix monotherapy or clopidogrel monotherapy. And so within sort of the Canadian context, we typically use 81 milligrams. And so I don't know how that influenced the bleeding that they saw within this trial. Yeah. So the point about the cytochrome P450 is a great one. However, when there's been clinical trials where they've looked at whether or not genotyping actually has an effect on outcomes for individuals who got clopidogrel, no difference. I'm less worried about that. And also, we clearly saw that people who got dual antiplatelet had a lower risk of stroke, albeit with a higher risk of bleeding. So I'm a little bit less worried about that. I think the biggest thing for me is like, why on earth did they give this for 90 days? We already know, I think, that 21 days is probably the right approach. So that's what fundamentally boggles my mind. Um, why would you choose 90 days? Why don't you just choose 21 days? Does that boggle your mind as well? 100%. Yeah, that's something I started scratching my head through when I was reading the trial. Yeah. And then you mentioned about dual antiplate with aspirin and ticagrelor for um, TIA or mild stroke. I always thought that ticagrelor was not an effective agent in the DAPT family for mild stroke, but I also have to admit that I am sleep deprived. So I will fact check myself on that one. Uh, the recent trial uh, describing the efficacy of ticagrelor in this context was the Thallus trial. Um, and so that is sort of now incorporated into the stroke guidelines. Uh, okay, there you go. A constant reminder that as staff physicians, our knowledge rusts quickly, hence why we need to um, work closely with trainees. Okay, so what's the take-home point here? So the take-home point is treatment with clopidogrel and aspirin or DAPT initiated within 72 hours after symptom onset of either a high-risk TIA or low-risk stroke um, really reduced the risk of new stroke but had a higher risk of moderate to severe bleeding with, uh, compared to aspirin alone uh, within that 90-day period that they studied. Gotcha. So then what are you going to do the next time you see somebody with um, a iris TIA or mild stroke and they've come in at the 70-hour mark? You're going to use DAPT, single agent? To be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that when comparing the risk of moderate to severe bleeding with the benefits from prevention of recurrent stroke, et cetera, I feel like the benefits and risks are sort of balanced within what they've described and what they've shown within their data. So I think that for me, I'd probably feel more comfortable with single antiplatelet therapy with aspirin, but then I don't know if that's me just being too cautious in this context, but I think I would still probably use single antiplatelet therapy if it was between 24 and 72 hours. Gotcha. Yeah, to be honest, I think I would use DAPT, but I just wouldn't do it for 90 days. I would do it for 21 days, um, but I don't think there is truly a right answer here. Sometimes in this scenario, what I do find is helpful is just to understand in the trial, where, wh when was the highest risk period for bleeding? 
So when you can, when the authors give enough information, if you realize, oh, wait a second, the highest risk period for bleeding was like past 21 days, then I feel even better justifying to myself that, okay, I'm giving you DAPT, but for 21 days. Uh, alas, it sounds like it, we might need another trial um, before at least you feel comfortable changing your practice. Very fair. And of course, the time where I get to pretend to be the stroke neurologist is when I'm up in Sault Ste. Marie. And yes, um, this episode has been brought to you uh, by um, Sault Ste. Marie and uh, just a terrific place to work. As I've mentioned so many times before, there are multiple job postings um, and availabilities, as well as elective opportunities for residents and fellows. Justin, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So um, stay tuned, and uh, people can always email me. Uh, I, I actually recently had a, a terrific R5 with me, uh, Dr. Rashil Chowdhury. So the invitation is open, Justin. Thank you. I'll accept it. <laughs> okay, you heard that, listeners, on record right there. Anyway, we'll keep going. Uh, enough about the Sioux for now, at least. Uh, I'm going to talk about a recent article published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2024, or was it 2023? No, I think it was actually 2023, just before the new year. It was restrictive or liberal transfusion strategy in MI and anemia. And what was the research question? What is the ideal transfusion threshold for patients with myocardial infarction and anemia? Question I have always wondered myself, and why is this important? MI is common and deadly. Anemia is also common, but not exactly deadly. However, when you have both of these together, we actually don't have a great sense of what should the transfusion threshold be. There have been three small randomized trials that have attempted to answer this question, but they've given inconsistent results. And typically what I've seen happen is people just kind of make it up. Sometimes they'll use a threshold of 70, sometimes 80, sometimes a bit higher. That is also what I learned sort of 70 or 80 is the threshold to use in this context. Uh, what was their study design? This was a multi-center, unblinded, randomized controlled trial of a transfusion threshold of 100, the so-called liberal group, versus 70 or 80, the so-called restrictive group, for patients with acute MI and anemia. If we break down the study in some more detail, the population included adults with MI, this could be STEMI or NSTEMI, and anemia, defined as a hemoglobin less than 100 or less than 10 in American units. The key exclusion criteria were uncontrolled bleeding, patients receiving palliative care, or a planned cardiac surgery. As mentioned, the intervention group was a liberal threshold of 100, with the goal to maintain the hemoglobin above 100 until the time of discharge, and the comparator was a restrictive threshold of 70 or 80. So they kind of left it up to the doc, but if it was like 80, they're like, hey, we'd suggest a transfusion, and if it was 70, it was like, hey, we would really want you to give a transfusion. Um, the key exclusion criteria that I've uh, already mentioned, just as a reminder, uncontrolled bleeding and receiving palliative care. Those are the main two. And I mentioned this because this is a nice pragmatic trial. Um, outcome was a composite of myocardial infarction or death at uh, 30 days, and the outcome adjudication was blinded. Sounds great. And what did the patients look like? So they randomized 3,500 patients. The average age was 72, 46% were women, 12% were black, 70% were white, 30% had prior heart failure, 30% had prior myocardial infarction. Uh, the index event was 
and STEMI for like 80% of patients. And most of them had demand ischemia. So we see this all the time on the general internal medicine ward. The mean hemoglobin of included individuals was 86, and the mean creatinine was 123. Follow-up was complete for 98% of patients. All right. And what were their main results? So the first question is, you know, if you got randomized to conservative versus liberal, how many transfusions did you get? So in the conservative arm, on average, 0.7, in the liberal arm, 2.5. And uh, as a result, the hemoglobin was 13 points lower in the conservative arm, which of course, you'd expect that, okay? Like blood works. <laughs> um, uh, so of course, let's focus on the primary outcome. It occurred in 17% in the restrictive group. So that means 70% in the restrictive group had MI or death and 14.5% in the liberal group. So that suggests better outcomes if you were in the liberal group, right? Like maybe a 2.5% absolute risk reduction, but with a confidence interval that crossed one. Um, Whenever you have a composite outcome, you always want to know, well, what's driving the risk? And it's like sort of spot on, equally distributed by both MI um, and death. Now, the devil is always in the details with these trials. So one thing that is important to be aware of is that 2% of patients in the restrictive group discontinued what they are randomized to. So for example, like grandma's bleeding and the doc said, I don't care what they're randomized to, grandma needs blood. No problem. 2%, not a big deal. But in the liberal strategy arm, 14% discontinued And the most common reason for discontinuing it was adverse events like transfusion reaction or volume overload. So when you see this large rate of discontinuation in one arm versus the other, oof, I get a little bit worried when you interpret the results. Now, overall, the risk of adverse events was similar in the two groups, but there was less TACO in the restrictive group. 0.5% 0.5% versus 1.5%, but a um, similar risk of heart failure and a similar risk of transfusion reactions. All right. Thank you for going over all of that. And I may have missed it when I went through the paper myself, but did they include people that had MINS in the study? Oh, MINS. That's like this, this made up thing from McMaster. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So the vast majority of these individuals, it was truly like coming in with an outpatient um, event. I think it was almost entirely that group, but I would have to fact check that. Thank you. Um, And what were the main limitations within the study? So one limitation is the missing outcome data. Remember I said that 98% of people completed the study. Um, But when you have a confidence interval that just crosses one, for example, if only you had the information for that other 2%, only you had that information. So it leads to a bit of a fragile result. And of course, the higher rate of discontinuation in the liberal arm, that's tricky. Um, But if we can do some mental gymnastics for a second, we already saw that the liberal arm, right, the ones that had a threshold of 100, seemed to do better. So if there was a higher rate of discontinuation in that liberal arm, that means that we're probably underestimating the benefits to that group. It's a subtle but really, really important point. The other limitation is like, why did they want to keep the hemoglobin above a certain threshold throughout their whole hospital stay? Like, I would have been fine if it was just like 
And we kept it above this for the first 48 hours. But that's my editorializing. Those are great limitations to highlight. And what would be the take-home point for the study? The take-home point is that a restrictive threshold of 70 or 80 for those with acute, with acute MI and anemia, that might be harmful. All right. And is this practice changing for you? I think it is, actually. So I, I think this is pretty darn good data to suggest that we should likely be targeting a higher hemoglobin threshold than 70 or 80. Um, will I target 100 in everyone? No. Will I target 100 for every day they're in hospital? No. Um, but I do think the next time I see a patient who's coming in with an NSTEMI or a sort of you know like type 2 MI, I will probably have a conversation, of course, um, but I will probably advocate that we target 90 and in some even higher, but I'll be very cautious in those at highest risk of TACO. Um, in that scenario, I might be a bit more sheepish. That makes perfect sense. I'd be curious about the role of IV iron in a situation like this. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I completely agree, Justin. I think that's the next trial. Maybe the next trial is like, I don't know, uh, 80 versus 100, but you use iron plus blood or something. I don't know. I'll need more sleep to think through it, but, but I really like that. And um, I think that's probably what I'll start reaching for as well. Alrighty. Thank you so much, Mike. Cool, Justin. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. We are almost done. Uh, we are getting to the good stuff of the episode. Um, what good stuff caught your eye? So I was perusing through the internet, and I saw a recent article on CTV about an ant that can produce its own antibiotics. So there's a type of ant that eats off termites, and if they're injured, there's an antibiotic ant within their colony that can heal their wounds, which I thought was very interesting and very cool. Oh, nice. There was some article, it was like blowing up that like AI has discovered a new antibiotic, but it sounds like that's not the article that you're referring to. It is not, no. Okay, fair enough. Um, my good stuff is um, actually related to AI. How much have you used ChatGPT? I have used it just to like, like random questions, but nothing serious. Oh, Justin, come on. You're younger than me, man. Definitely like hop on this bandwagon wave, whatever the analogy is here. I actually just started paying for um, ChatGPT Pro, and it's just incredible. Especially, I think as a researcher, it's made my life a lot easier. I can like toss a grant in there and then say, okay, now draft a half page lay summary. Okay, and now draft a 400 word, whatever. So I just find it makes things that I don't enjoy doing less painful. Um, and it's really good at basic data analytics, which is actually what a lot of my research involves. I should try it out. That sounds very amazing. Yeah. Once, once you make that staff money, trust me, uh, 20 some odd dollars a month, that is uh, very much affordable. Anyway, Justin, great to chat. And uh, you take care and we'll talk again soon. You as well. Bye-bye. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.